right, let's turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, and we'll uh, continue here with uh, some of the works that God does through the prophet Elisha. And uh, actually, in the first part, about the first half of this chapter, Elisha appears only briefly, but he's a central figure in it anyway. This is the story of... Uh, a relatively well-known character in the Bible called Naaman the Syrian. You've probably heard that name somewhere. Maybe you've heard a message preached on this chapter somewhere along the line. We want to look at this story here this morning, and I, I think I'm going to approach this uh, this particular story in the uh, in Second Kings in a little different way than I normally go at it. Uh, I want to maybe just go through at least about the first half of this story down to about verse 14, just sort of reading through and giving enough commentary to understand maybe the historical context. And once we've gotten the story clear in our minds, go back and look at some of the pieces because there is something going on here uh, sort of under the surface that may not be immediately obvious to somebody who wasn't familiar with the New Testament or maybe somebody who only was there in that day and saw the events that happened. God is doing something very important in this story that has implications even for us now. And to kind of give you the a little foreshadowing of where I'm going, Naaman ought to be pretty important to us because he's a Gentile, right? Mostly we've been doing with Jewish people, and this is a Gentile. Now, that ought to mean a lot to us because we're all Gentiles here, right, as far as I know. There may be somebody here who has some Jewish blood, but I think most of us are Gentiles. And uh, this is a story of how God deals with a Gentile. He's a Syrian man. And uh, if you've been with us for a while now, you probably remember that that uh, a Syrian was, generally speaking, an enemy of Israel at this point. Uh, we've gone through three separate battles that they fought with the Syrians. And this is one of the men who's involved in those battles. And uh, now we're going to see how God is going to bless him and heal him from his leprosy. And that's actually a very powerful thing for us, isn't it? Because we as Gentiles, we're not the, uh, the chosen people of the earth that God set aside back in the Old Testament. But if we'll believe on Jesus Christ, we are his chosen heavenly people now. And actually, it makes no difference whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, as far as that's concerned. In this age, you have to come by faith in Christ, and that's the only way to come. So this is an important story for us. And, and like I said, when we get to the New Testament, we'll find that actually Jesus himself specifically links this story to his mission to come and save the world. So it's really important. So we start, start here in verse 5, and it says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, he was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Okay, so we've got this figure named Naaman. And one of the things we want to notice as we go through this first half of the story down to about verse 14 are, are the characters of the story. Each one of these characters are important, and we'll try to put that together at the end. And this is the principal character of this story. His name is Naaman. And uh, he's a great soldier. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you might remember that uh, when the king of Syria, whose name was Ben-Hadad, uh, when he attacked Israel the first time, when uh, Ahab was the king, uh, he failed in his battle. 
Uh, he, the Lord intervened and gave Israel the victory, but the Syrians, they couldn't believe that it was by the hand of God that Israel won. So they had to think up reasons of their own. One of the reasons they came up with was that, uh, they fought him in the wrong place, right? They fought him in the hills and they thought that Israel's God was a God of the hills. So if they could fight him down on the plain, they'd have a better chance. Well, they tried it on the plane later. That didn't work out any better for him either because it turns out God is God everywhere, right? But one of the other issues they had is that when King Ben-Hadad attacked the first time, he had set over his army 32 kings. And he had, these, these would have been sort of under kings beneath him. He had conquered enough territory or possessed enough territory that there were uh, sort of small petty kings. And he had 32 of them and he put them at the head of his army. Something that's been pretty common in history is a sort of a political appointment, you know, that, you know, uh, in order to kind of stroke somebody's ego, you'll give them a position of power. And he found out, as many leaders have found out over the years, that once you get into battle, it's not necessarily the best idea. So after that first battle that he lost, he fired his 32 kings and hired 32 captains who were actually military men, experienced, who, who knew how to fight battles. Now, probably Naaman is one of these captains, most likely. And now he's risen to the status of captain of the host. In other words, it would appear that he, he would have been what we would now maybe call general of the army, a five-star general. He's, he's the head over the whole thing, right? And the reason this has happened is because he is, uh, he's won great honor in battle. The Lord had given deliverance unto Syria through this man. They had won battles. He had a proven track record. And he's a mighty man in valor. But he has one thing going against him. He's a leper. Now, uh, in Israel, this would have made him an outcast, right? There never would have been any chance, actually, for this man to serve in the army in Israel. He, because there were commandments that uh, in Israel that they were supposed to be, the lepers were supposed to be outside the camp, so they didn't infect anybody else. And leprosy, if you don't know what it is, 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 a, is a very terrible disease that was uh, it's still in the world today, although it's not quite clear that what we now call leprosy is exactly the same thing they had back then. As a matter of fact, it seems like back then what was called leprosy may have been more than one disease that was kind of grouped together, but it involved uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, sores and lesions on the skin and, and eventually ended up in a loss of feeling in the skin. And if it goes on far enough, actually pieces of the body start to decay and fall off. You start to lose fingers and toes and so on. And uh, he has this disease. Now, he must have been really something special for people to still be willing to follow him. <laughs> you know, uh, in Israel, this would have been regarded as a curse from God. And rightly so. God had put it down that way, that this would have been regarded generally as a punishment. But this man must have been a tremendous general. And as we go through this story, it will become clear that his servants really love him. So he must have been a, a really uh, sort of special figure, but he does have this problem. He's a leper. And so this would have generally, generally resulted in, uh, of course, a great diminishment of quality of life and in time probably would have resulted in a shortening of life. And uh, he, he wants to be healed of this, right? And he's got some servants that want him healed of this. Now, it says, And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Now, she's a really interesting character that we'll come back to later. She's a, a slave. She's been in some raid that the Syrians have made against Israel. She's been captured. And against her will, she's been taken away from her home, made a servant here to Naaman's wife. 
And she said, in verse three, she said unto her mistress, would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Now, we see two things in view here. One is that Naaman must have been a man who could inspire admiration in anybody. And for the other thing, this must have been a very gracious and loving little maid, wouldn't you think so, if you've been taken away as a slave (laughs) to care anything at all about your master? You know, Most people would say, good enough for him. He's got leprosy. He deserved it, right? But she wants to see this man healed. And uh, so he says, would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria. And she's speaking here of Elisha. Now, whether she didn't know his name or uh, she just didn't speak it in this moment, we don't know. But she doesn't mention his name, just says that there's this prophet in Samaria. And uh, so that's what she says. And then it says in verse four, and one went in and told his Lord saying, thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. Okay, so now we've got another character who's unnamed. Little maid, we're not told her name. Now we have this fellow, he's just one that went in. (laughs) Okay, and we don't know his name. But he goes and tells Naaman, well, there's this little girl down here. She's from Israel and said something about a prophet down there who could uh, could heal your, your disease. And it's all, it's all very vague so far, isn't it? It's just, just sort of a rumor being passed around. That, But if you've got a, a terrible disease, you'll cast about for just about anything to try to get help if you haven't been able to find any, right? So, so maybe he decides he wants to do this. But actually, interestingly enough, it's not Naaman himself who goes and seeks after Elisha at first. It says, And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter under the king of Israel. I don't know what Naaman's state of mind was. We're not really told. It's not actually said whether he had this great desire to go down there or not. It was the king of Syria who loved his captain so much and wanted to see him healed that he will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, you'll notice here that it doesn't seem like the message has been translated with perfect clarity as it goes through one hand to the other, right? You, you know the old telephone game, right? Where you, you know, you, you whisper something in your neighbor's ear and then they whisper it in their neighbor's ear and it goes around the room. By the time you get around, it's not anything like the thing it was when it started. Uh, the king of Syria decides he's going to send a letter. And as far as we have any statement in the scripture, in his letter, he doesn't even mention the prophet of Samaria. He just got a vague idea that there's something going on down there in Israel. And so he's going to lay it on the king of Israel to try to fix this. And so he, he says he's going to send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. So a, a great gift, right? 10 talents of silver would be, well, there's some argument about how much a uh, talent is, but probably something around 75 or 100 pounds. So you can imagine 10 times that. That's a lot of silver. That's that's a very valuable gift. 6,000 pieces of gold, 10 changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. Now, so we've got uh, two more characters involved here. We have this king of Syria who's sending this letter. And now we have the king of Israel who receives the letter. 
And if you read this text carefully, it puts the king of Israel in a pretty tight spot, doesn't it? (laughs) Because he doesn't say, I've sent Naaman down there, take him over to Elisha the prophet. He says, I've sent him to you that thou mayest recover his leprosy, right? He's put the whole thing on the king of Israel. I don't know how this got mixed up in his head. Or uh, maybe he just figured that at this point, he's a more powerful king and he can lay this threat on him. He figures that if he puts, if he makes the king of Israel personally responsible, then the king will figure out who the prophet is who can do this, right? But it causes a panic for the king of Israel. It came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. The poor king doesn't know what to make of this. Now, remember by this time, Elisha is probably a little on a little bit better with terms with the king of Israel than had been previously, uh, you know, when uh, Jehoshaphat had to deal with uh, Ahab and so on, because remember, this particular king uh, had gone out to fight against Moab and God had used Elisha to provide as part of his plan to provide a miracle to deliver the army of Israel in desperate straits. So he probably doesn't hate Elisha quite to the same extent that Ahab and Jezebel hated Elijah earlier, but it doesn't seem to have had a close enough relationship that when he gets this letter to immediately think of Elisha, right? He's sitting there thinking, well, what do I do now? And his, his interpretation of this uh, is that probably the king of Syria has sent this letter because he's trying to think of some excuse to start a war. That's why he says, see how he seeketh a quarrel against me, right? And if you understand how diplomatic relations work back then, and well, to be honest, they're sometimes about the same way today. Uh, very often those people who are heads of state or in positions of power are, are not very straightforward in the things they say, right? There's always intrigue and scheming and that sort of thing. And the king of Syria probably, he, he what the king of Israel thinks is that the king of Syria has decided he's not just going to go start a war without cause. So he thinks he thinks the king of Syria is trying to drum up a battle, right? He, he totally misunderstands the circumstances. And uh, he doesn't know what to do with this. But now God's going to intervene through Elijah. It says, and it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. (laughs) Thank God for Elisha and his faith, right? Because what Elisha does, he says essentially this to the king. He says, King, don't you worry about that letter. There's nothing wrong with a letter. They just sent it to the wrong address. (laughs) That wasn't meant for the king. That was supposed to come to the prophet. And he says, I'm that prophet, and I believe that God can do this work through me. And he's not scared at all, is he? Well, that's confidence in God, isn't it? The king's terrified. He thinks he's going to get killed because he's not able to recover this man of his leprosy. But Elisha's got so much faith in God, and he's seen what we've been going through this section here for a while now that I I call the Acts of Elisha, where it just records the miraculous things that God did by the hand of this man. And uh, he's got so much confidence in God. He says, just send him down here. God can work this miracle. 
Wouldn't it be something if we had that kind of confidence in God? Enough faith to stick our neck out a little bit. You know, you know what I'm saying? We'll, we'll sometimes have confidence in God as long as it doesn't really cost us anything. As long as there's no great risk to it. But he's unconcerned with the risk. He knows that God can take care of this. So Naaman comes to him, verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. <laughs> Elisha treats him in a very odd way. Says he's at the door of Elisha, Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even come to the door. <laughs> now, uh, we've mentioned before that there are some hints in the scripture that by this time Elisha may have been an older man or may have been disabled in some way that it, it was a little bit hard for him to get around, but whatever it was, he doesn't even come to the door of the house. He just sends out a messenger saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. See, he's offended <laughs> because he's used to being treated as somebody, right? He's a big deal. He's the captain of the host of the Syrians, which was a pretty powerful army at that time. He is the king's right-hand man, at least in a military sense. He's got a lot of people under him. He's used to be used to being treated with respect. And uh, he wants Elisha, this man of God, he wants to come him to come out and do some great ceremony over him. <laughs> and Elisha doesn't come out. So he's mad. And uh, he says this in verse 12, Are not Abana and Farfar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He says, what am I doing down here in Israel? He's from Syria. Remember, Damascus is the capital of Syria. He said, we've got better rivers than Jordan up there. This man telling me to go dip myself in the river Jordan. The Jordan River, by the way, if you don't know this, is not, generally speaking, to humanize a really impressive thing. Uh, you might have a mistaken impression of that if you've never seen a picture of it because it has such an importance in the Scripture, right? And we read about uh, Joshua and the children of Israel crossing the river when God stopped up the river, and then Elijah and Elisha did the same thing. And you might get the impression that it's a big river. Well, it sort of was when Joshua went across because it was at flood stage at that time and it was hard to get across. But most of the time, the Jordan River is not much more than what we would call a creek around here. I mean, it's a little bit more, but it's, it's not, a, it's, it's not the Mississippi River, right? Or the Nile River or something like that. It's just, it's sort of a little stream that flows down from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And it's usually muddy most of the time. And, uh, a man who had seen the world would not be impressed with this. A man who had seen the Nile or the Euphrates or the Tigris would hardly even think of this as a river. And he says, we've got these rivers up in Damascus. They're better than this river. And why don't I just go wash in them? And so he's given up on this man as a prophet. He makes a great mistake here because uh, and this is a common mistake, I think, that lost people make, is that uh, 
they depend more on how they're treated by the prophet than the truth that the prophet gives them. And I don't mean to say that the prophet ought to be rude to a person, but what I'm saying is this. When the person gets the real message from God, your pride will often make it seem like it's rude even when it's not. Right? Because a lost person doesn't want to hear the truth. Uh, unless God has opened up their mind to receive that, the truth becomes offensive to them. And so he goes away in a rage. Now, we have another set of characters that come in here. And that's his servants. And it says, his servants came near, spake unto him, and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean? It's good to have a voice of reason come in sometimes, isn't it? (laughs) He says, uh, what if he'd told you to, you know, go down to Egypt and cut off Pharaoh's head and bring it back on a charger? You would have tried that, wouldn't you? (laughs) If you could do some great work like Hercules, you know, was assigned all these great works they say in the myths. You would have tried that. And he says, I think the idea is, we're not far from the Jordan River really here. Why don't you at least go try it, right? I mean, what does it hurt to go down there and see what happens? And uh, so then he went, went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So God has done this miracle. He's cleansed this man of leprosy. And uh, by the way, this is interesting because... We include this with the miracles of Elisha, but actually Elisha doesn't work this miracle at all, does he? He's not even present. He just told the man where to go <laughs> and what to do. And he's healed this man from his leprosy. And then let me skip on to verse 15. We'll read that before we start getting into some of the, the details of what all these characters in the story mean and what the overall impact of the story is. <clears throat> it says, and he returned to the man of God and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Now, we're not going to get into all this part about taking a blessing of the servant quite yet. We want to uh, look at these first 14 verses a little more before we get into that. But I want you to notice his confession. That's why I read this 15th verse. He says, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And that is a great statement, isn't it? Uh, He doesn't have a full comprehension about God, but then neither did we when we first got saved, did we? (laughs) And matter of fact, we don't now. We understand more than we did. He doesn't understand certain things. He says there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, he has still enough of that old leftover tradition in his mind to think that God specifically belongs just to Israel. A lot of those old people back in those days thought that there were different gods that inhabited different pieces of land. You know, they, they kind of thought that if you could have seen a map of the world, uh, I don't know if you've ever taken a look at uh, the tax maps down at the courthouse or something like that, and it's got all the parcels marked off and who holds the 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 uh, deed to each of those parcels. I guess they thought that the gods were kind of like that. If you could have made out a map, you could have marked out that this part belongs to Dagon and this part belongs to Jehovah and this part belongs to Ishtar and so on like that. And uh, 
his confession now is he, he's given up. He doesn't believe in any of the other gods. We'll see later that there was a god down there in Damascus that they worship named Remon. And he doesn't believe in him anymore. Now, it's not clear that he thinks that this God uh, operates all over the earth, but at least he's confessed that there is no other God, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not a perfect confession, but I don't know. We'll find out someday. I've got an idea that we'll meet Naaman when we get to heaven. Don't you think so? He responded to what revelation God had given him. In the Old Testament, they didn't have a full revelation of who Jesus Christ was, or at least most people didn't. A few people had a little more insight than others did, but for the most part, they didn't have this full revelation. But God, uh, God justified men based on the faith that they had in what revelation He had given at the time. And that's what revelation this man has had. He said, there's a God down here in Israel. And he said, he, he goes beyond believing that there's a God in Israel to saying there is no other God. And for a man in that day to say that was a tremendous confession. He was renouncing everything he'd been taught from his youth up and confessing this God only. And so uh, I believe the man was saved. <laughs> I think we'll meet him in heaven someday. He didn't have everything quite figured out, as we'll see later. <laughs> he seemed to have wanted to, he thought that God was attached to the soil of Israel so much he wanted to take some of the soil of Israel home with him. <laughs> So that he could have a little, a little piece of it in his house, I guess. But, uh, that's the idea that this, this man Naaman, through this miracle that God has worked and through a, a whole lot of working of God sort of behind the scenes has now come to the place of faith in God. Now, I said this was connected to the New Testament and I want to turn now, keep your finger there in second Kings because we'll be back there in just a minute. But I want to turn to Luke chapter 4 and notice something very important in this chapter that Jesus has to say about this specific man. In Luke chapter 4, uh, we find Jesus really publicly announcing his ministry clearly for the first time. And uh, there were some things I think he'd done before this, but in, in this chapter, he comes into the synagogue in Nazareth where he'd grown up. On the Sabbath day, which was his custom, that's what he had always done, he apparently was in the habit of uh, not just going to synagogue, but he would get up and read from the Word of God. And ordinarily what was done is that when somebody would read in the synagogue, they would read a little passage of Scripture, and then they'd, they'd give a commentary on it or something like that. By the way, wouldn't it have been really something to be there in Jesus' Bible class? <laughs> Yeah. and not even know it. <laughs> I mean, apparently it was his custom to open up the, the, the Old Testament and read and give commentary on it, and nobody knew that they were getting commentary from the one who authored the thing to start with. Well, sometimes we don't know how good we've got it, right? <laughs> and that's, that's what these people didn't understand. Anyway, on this day, uh, he reads from the book of Isaiah chapter 61, the first verse and a little bit into the second verse, and verse 18 is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. 
And he actually stopped right in the middle of a verse, <laughs> right? Because there's something that goes a little further there about it, the wrath or the judgment of God. But this was not the time for that, right? That's, that's something to come later. So he stops here for the moment. And he closed the book and he gave it down to, gave it again to the minister and sat down. And that's where it got really strange because he didn't follow the normal procedure of giving a commentary on the verse. He just sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. They were sort of staring at him, wondering what he was doing. It would be just like if I got up here this morning and uh, for Sunday school and I, and I read a few verses of scripture and then sat down. You'd all be looking at me wondering, what, what's he doing this morning? That doesn't, he never did that before, right? So they're all staring at him. And now he's got their attention and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And I don't think there's any way to overstate what a dramatic moment that was. Because for centuries, remember, at this time, they haven't even had a prophet for around 400 years. At least a prophet whose writing was included in the scripture, right? So he reads from this prophecy that everybody knows is about Messiah, who's coming to preach the gospel to the poor. He's anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to do all this. And that was their custom to read those. And then somebody would say something about the hope they have. One day he's going to come and deliver us. And what he says to them is, I'm here. You've been looking for this for centuries. Today it's fulfilled. You have your king. And uh, you'd think that would be a cause for great rejoicing, wouldn't you? (laughs) You know what they said? I said, well, is not this Joseph's son? <laughs> I don't guess it ever occurred to him that Messiah had to be somebody's son. <laughs> right? They, but they, the old saying is that familiarity breeds contempt, right? And they thought, well, we've known this kid all our lives. Who does he think he is? And they couldn't see who he really was. And uh, he said unto them, "Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And then in verse 25, 26, 27, we get to the really relevant part of this for the lesson today. He says, But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon unto a woman that was a widow. Now, remember, we talked about that in 1 Kings 17. We've had a lot of reference to it since then. This was this uh, widow of, in the Old Testament, it's called Zarephath, but Sarepta is the same city. It's just sort of the Greek version of the name. And Elias is Elijah, and God sent Elijah down there to this woman, and God miraculously provided for her all the time that there was no rain. And Jesus' point is this. There were a lot of widows in Israel, but I sent Elijah down to a Gentile woman down inside. And then he goes on in verse 27, he says, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And that's Elisha, that's the Greek version of that name. And uh, he says, uh, when Elisha came, there were a lot of lepers in Israel. But none of them got cleansed except for that old Gentile. Now, this raises a really interesting point because, by the way, this should have been one of the signs to the people that Jesus really was who he said he was because he was going around healing lepers. 
if you go back in the book of Leviticus and read the 13th and 14th chapters, and I know a lot of people's eyes start to glaze over when you tell them to read in the book of Leviticus, because if you're, if you're not really interested in law and all the details of that, sometimes it's a little hard for some people to process. But in the 13th and 14th chapter of Leviticus, there is specific law about how to deal with cases of leprosy. And uh, it actually goes beyond just leprosy of the body. That's why I say there were some things beyond what we now call leprosy involved. There was leprosy that could uh, infest a house or that could infest a piece of fabric. Probably something like what we would now call black mold or something like that was what they were talking about. But it, it took in a wider range than what we now call leprosy. But anyway, there were there were all these procedures. They're long chapters, and you can you can try to plow through them sometime about exactly how you would deal with this leprosy, and. Uh, if a person was healed of leprosy, they had to go see the priest and there was a ceremony that had to be gone through and that would have confirmed that they no longer had leprosy and they could be returned to the population, right? But if when they had leprosy, they were supposed to be outside the camp in a sort of a, an enclosure and a colony of their own and not come in contact with the people. As a matter of fact, they were supposed to cry unclean, unclean if anybody came close so you didn't spread this disease. And so if they had been healed, they could resume their normal life again. Now, the priests, no doubt, would have had to study those chapters. The priests were required to be knowledgeable of the law, and they would have had to have been aware of those chapters in case anybody ever came. But the funny thing was, for 1,500 years, nobody ever came. Nobody was ever healed of leprosy. Uh, the last person that had leprosy relieved in the scripture between the time of Moses and Jesus, if we leave out this Syrian name, uh, Moses' sister Miriam one time criticized Moses because of his wife as a whole family thing. You know how in-laws are, right? <laughs> and so he married this Ethiopian or Midianite woman and she didn't like that. And so she spoke out against him and God gave her leprosy and, uh, in due course of time, God healed her of her leprosy. And that, that was in Moses' day. And from Moses' day until Jesus started to heal lepers in the New Testament, there is no record of anybody ever being healed of leprosy except this one man, Naaman. There were other people who got leprosy. Uh, king Uzziah, who was a godly king for the most part, but one time he intruded into things he shouldn't have done and offered a sacrifice where that was supposed to be the priest's job. And God gave him leprosy and he lived out his days with leprosy. But this one man was healed of leprosy and he's not even a Jew. Now, Jesus in this passage very clearly connects this with his work as Messiah and even with preaching the gospel to the poor. So you see what I'm saying? This, this thing that happened back there in 2 Kings chapter 5 is not just an event unto itself. It's something that God specifically ordained to carry forth the message that salvation is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. That when Jesus comes, uh, he's not just coming to be the king of the Jews, but he's coming to be the savior of the whole world. Now, this was plainly stated in the Old Testament. It often got overlooked uh, but there were many places in the Old Testament where God made it clear that he intended to save not just uh, Jews, but Gentiles. And I won't read all of them now because there are a lot of those passages. But remember, even when God made the covenant with Abraham, he told him that all nations would be blessed in him, right? 
not just the Jews or not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And let me read just one here in Isaiah 49, 6, because this is one of the best known maybe, and it states it very clearly. He said, is it a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel? That is, he says to Messiah, it is a light thing that I would just bring you to restore Jacob and Israel. He says, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. That's all the way back in the Old Testament. And we find, you know, when we come to the New Testament, that some of the uh, Jewish Christians were debating about whether Gentiles had been saved. Well, they should have read Isaiah, right? Because Isaiah made it very clear that Messiah would come not just to be salvation for Judah and Israel, but for the Gentiles to be a, a light unto them for salvation to the ends of the world. And uh, so this man, Naaman, becomes a type or a figure of that and how salvation is offered to all men. Now, we come back here to the book of Second Kings chapter 5 with that in mind that this is not just a story about one man being healed of leprosy, but it's a statement about how God loves all people and intends to save all people. A healing from leprosy is a type or a picture of a spiritual healing, right? And by the way, I think Naaman got the spiritual healing too, right? Because he, he expresses his faith in God. But what I want to notice about this is how remarkably God works to bring this about. That's why I tried to highlight some of these characters as we go through. You think about what a, what a particular set of events had to happen to get Naaman down there to that river to be cleansed. Throughout this passage in 2 Kings chapter 5, it's not entirely clear, at least at first, that Naaman even desired to be cleansed. He didn't go looking for the prophet. He gets sent, right? Well, isn't that the way it is with us when we get saved? We didn't seek God. He sought us. When the message of the gospel was preached to you and the Holy Spirit started to open up to you your need for Christ, could any of us honestly say that you've been looking your whole life to try to find that? It wasn't even on your radar, was it? Never even thought about it. He came to you, didn't he? Now, you had a disease. Naaman had a disease. He knew he had a disease. Most lost people don't even know that they've got a disease. They, they, let me put it this way. Most lost people know that there's something wrong with them, but they can't put their finger on it, right? They just don't quite know what it is. There are very few people in this world outside of Christ who are really satisfied with their lives. They may put on a good show, but they know there's something lacking there. They know there's something wrong, right? Naaman's got this problem. He doesn't know what to do about it. He's not even really seeking to get it fixed. But God starts to put these people in his path. <laughs> the amazing thing is that a lot of the people that come into his path that end up getting him down here to the Jordan River, oddly enough, are not even godly people. God can work with any tool, can he? Do you know that sometimes without even realizing it and and maybe just in a I'm not talking about just outright preaching the gospel but sometimes in a very subtle way it may be that God used a lost person to help bring you to Christ well it may be that you just saw how messed up their life was and you said I don't want to be like that or it, it may have been something far more subtle than that 
there are people in this story who are vital to the story who are never even named. There are people who had to suffer in order to make this happen. So we start to think back about these characters. How about this little maid? You know none of this story happens without this little maid. We don't know her name. (laughs) She had to suffer. She had to be torn away from her home, carried off into a place she doesn't know, made a servant for what to her would have been a heathen or a pagan, taken away from... She obviously was... this was obviously a, at least to some extent a godly young woman because she, she believed that this prophet came from God, right? That was down there in Samaria. And uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that most of us would have wanted to be in the shoes of this little maid, right? Most of us would like for our service to the Lord to be a little easier, wouldn't we? You know, we don't want to have to endure that suffering, but God uses that position that this girl is in and her faithfulness Boy, that's a powerful lesson, isn't it? Sometimes in our own lives, when things don't work out the way we think we should, we use that as an excuse to quit on God, don't we? Why, why would I go ahead and testify of God when he's abandoned me <laughs> down here in this Syrian's household? But there doesn't seem to be any of that in this little girl. She hasn't lost her faith and she knows enough to know that the only hope for this man is to go down there and see that prophet in Samaria. So she, she sends this message. Now, on her own, this isn't enough, is it? She probably didn't even have much access to ever talk to Naaman himself, right? She's a servant to Naaman's wife. And Naaman probably barely even knew who she was. But somebody overheard this. <laughs> and... Uh, they start spreading the word. I, I don't even know. This is just somebody who's a part of the household, maybe not even a, an Israelite, maybe not a godly person, but they just heard, hey, this maid down here said something about this. You know, What do you think about this? Should we give it a try? So the king of Syria gets involved. Now, he's not a godly man. We've met him before. This is, this is still Ben-Hadad that, that went down there and attacked Ahab, and God had defeated his army a couple of times, you know, and he's, he's not really a godly man. And in due course of time, God's going to send Elisha down there to anoint his successor, who's going to kill Ben-Hadad. So he's not a godly man. But do you know without this man, Naaman never ends up down there in the Jordan River? You see how God works this chain of events? I, I wonder... I wonder if we could really see things from God's point of view, what all God actually did to bring us to himself. You know, there were probably things that happened and people who were involved that we don't even know about. To have this chain of events come to pass to bring us to the place we believe on him. So he sends a letter to the king of Israel. Now, the king of Israel, remember at this time, he's an ungodly king who worships idols. (laughs) <laughs> and he doesn't even want to be a part of this story. He's scared to death, right? <laughs> he's, he's, all he knows is the king of Syria has sent him this letter that demands that he heal his servant. He thinks he's about to get into a war. <laughs> That's what he sees. <laughs> and uh, you see how this man behaves. You know he's actually pretty typical of humanity. Uh, most of the time, especially if we're not walking close to God, we don't really understand what's going on in the world around us. We don't comprehend it, right? And we see threats everywhere. We're always walking. If you're not walking close to God, you're usually walking in fear because you don't know what's about to come upon you. He projects upon this king of Syria the idea that he's probably trying to start a war because 
That's what he would have done if he had the chance. That's how he thinks, right? He's he's enmeshed in this world of uh, the kind of politics and warfare they had in this day, and he knows all about court intrigue, and he knows that if he wanted to start a war with the king of Syria, he might send him a letter like this, right? You know, And so that's how he's thinking. And he's part of this story, but he doesn't even know why or how. And then you come down here and you have this man, Elisha, and he's such a vital figure in this because he's the man of faith in this story. And isn't that a wonderful, precious thing? Up till this point, all Naaman has heard and all the king of Syria have, has heard is rumors. There's a vague idea that there's something down there that can be done for you. Now, do not lost people often find themselves in just this state. When a lost person comes to church to hear the gospel, <laughs> when they come in the door, they usually don't have any understanding really at all of what the gospel is, right? There's just a vague sense that there's something down there at church they need. <laughs> they don't quite know what it is. They don't know quite how to address it. Actually, the word lost is a very good word for a person in that condition, isn't it? Because you don't know what you're doing. And thank God for the one man who was the preacher that God had sent, who had the specific message. All he's heard is just go down there. This man has the specific thing to say. He's the man who has the message of what needs to be done. He says, go wash in Jordan seven times. Thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. Now, that ought to tell us something about how important the gospel message is in the church today, right? When we come to church, we ought to make it plain to those, if there's a lost person that comes in, most lost people are very, very confused about what salvation is. So how important is it for us to be very clear about our message? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It won't be anything that you accomplish. It won't be by any special work you do, but just believe. And that clear message is given. Now, uh, Naaman gets mad at the message and I don't think that's at all uncommon. A lot of times lost people get mad at the message when they first hear it, right? And it's just like Naaman. Uh, he wanted something more impressive to do, right? He wanted a great work to do. That becomes evident when his messengers come, when his servants come talk to him. And a lot of people, when they first hear the gospel, they want something more than just believe, right? They, they want to be told something to do, whether it's uh, to do some work or to give some offering or something like that. The, the pride of the human heart is arranged so that we, uh, we want to feel like we contributed to our salvation, right? And so sometimes the person gets mad at first and starts to think, well, I could figure out my own way that's better than this. Well, how many people are there in the world that have decided they can find their own path to salvation? This man, Naaman, says, well, what about those rivers of Damascus? They're better than these. Now, Here's where we have to in, introduce an important point. There is no healing power in the River Jordan. Anybody else that had leprosy could have gone down to that Jordan River and dipped seven times. It wouldn't have done him any good. The point is, that's what this man was told to do. The power of healing wasn't in the water. It was in obedience to the command of God. It was in faith, believing what God could do. That's why 
Abana and Farfar wouldn't have done this man any good. God didn't tell him to get baptized there to go dip there. He told him to go to Jordan and dip. And so he wants to reject the message. Then we have this other set of characters, these servants that come near. And they're not godly people, really. They're servants of this king of Syria, but at least they have a little voice of reason said, well, why don't you just go down there and try it? You know, he said, uh, that's what they said. If, you, if, if he'd said do a great thing, that would have stroked your pride and you would have said, well, I'll go try that. But their message to him is, well, why don't you just go down there and wash and be clean? And so in that manner, God brings him to the place where he comes to obedience. And it's a funny thing that really, it seems like Naaman is never really seeking this healing. He's actually fighting against it all the way, isn't he? He gets mad when he's told the method of it. And I, I think that seems so much like most of our experience when we come to Christ, doesn't it? None of us are really looking for him. The scripture says there's none that seeketh God. Thank God that he seeks after us. That he comes to us and breaks down all our objections. And sometimes he speaks harshly and sometimes he speaks gently, whatever needs to be done. Thank God he puts people in our way, right? Sometimes it influences us in the most unexpected of ways. Like I said, a lot of these people that help bring Naaman to this place are not even godly people, don't understand anything about God at all. As a matter of fact, the only two really that do are the little maid and Elisha. Those are the only ones who are really understand that they're, that they're servants of God. But through the miracle of God's grace, God can arrange events to bring this event, this, this healing to come to pass. And so it becomes a very wonderful story. Now, we'll stop there for today. Next time, Lord willing, we'll pick up in verse 15 and go on with the rest of the story. And uh, we'll find there that <laughs> Naaman, as is the case today with many young Christians, doesn't really fully understand what happened yet. And uh, he's, he's, it's going to take him a little while to really grasp what God has done, but he's going to, uh, he's going to try to pay for the grace of God, and you can never pay for the grace of God. And so we're going to see how that works out next time, Lord willing.